In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to our series, Life, the Islamic Answer. <clears throat> we were discussing the merits, the ranks, the positions, the favors of the teacher and scholar in Islam. And we had reached a point where we were discussing mainly the rank of this person in the afterlife. And we said that this is where we see the reality of things that are perhaps hidden in this world, not always taking the shape, the form, the appearance that they're supposed to have, because this is not a world of reality. This is a world of appearances. And so if we want to really understand the rank, the reality, the favors of teachers and scholars, or anything else for that matter, we should be focusing on their positions and the ranks in the afterlife. So that discussion had already started, and inshallah, we're going to continue with that discussion in the ranks and the positions of the teacher and the scholar in Islam in the afterlife. And we will continue from there. We mentioned previously that when we look at the ahadith that mention the ranks of scholarship or the scholars specifically, there were too many ahadith that very clearly say that knowledge, having knowledge, so carrying the knowledge, being a scholar, and even seeking the knowledge, trying to become a learner by itself, is superior to any act of worship. The act that this person has performed when they sacrifice their life for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is one more act of worship. And so this by itself should not come as a surprise. It simply is one more instance of the general rule that we already established. Knowledge is superior to worship. The acquiring of knowledge, the acquisition of knowledge, the use of knowledge is superior to any act of worship. And inshallah, this part is clear. The difference perhaps here is that it is singling out this specific act, which is that you are sacrificing your life, you're giving up your soul for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in case there is any doubt, and as we saw in previous ahadith, this has been singled out in different ways because in this case, you're not simply standing there to perform a few rak'at or performing a few more days of fasting, for instance, or spending a few weeks or months of your life to perform the pilgrimage. In this case, we're talking about giving up your life entirely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So even that act, going that far in your actions towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is still not a match for knowledge. And we gave the explanation of this. I don't want to go back to what we have said. In short, the answer to why this is the case is that it is knowledge that gives meaning to all of these acts of worship. Otherwise, an act of worship by itself is just an empty act. It's an action like no other 
any other action, no different than any other action that a human being performs. And it does not carry its significance by itself. And we talked at length about this in the past. We said any act that we perform gains its significance, gains its value, its importance, its merit, based on our level of, mer- of understanding, our level of knowledge, and our sincerity. What is the intent behind the action that you're performing? And this intent should stem and can only stem from the knowledge that you have. Why am I performing this? If it's an act of worship, who am I worshiping? Why am I worshiping? How sincere is my intention? All of this can only stem from knowledge. And so, of course, the role that you are performing to make all of this possible is going to be, it's going to be more significant than the act itself. This, inshallah, does not take away, does not lead to any confusion. We are not discouraging from any acts of worship. We're not saying that our religion discourages from any act of worship. All of them are preserved, with uh, uh, expressed, explained, presented with very well preserved, guaranteed rewards that are unmatched except by knowledge. So this is the part that we have to make clear. We're not saying that our religion is discouraging from. All of those things, as great as they are, it's simply highlighting that there is something that we may miss because it seems subtle or it seems surprising or it seems shocking. There's something even greater than all of these, which is that you acquire the right knowledge that can lead to you understanding what you are doing. Otherwise, your actions may not necessarily carry the right significance or be done with the right intentions or for the right reasons uh, at all. Now, in addition to all of this, there's also, you know, if we want to take it further specifically for this type, that's why I said we could spend a very long time on this hadith. For this specific act, when you are giving up your life for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we have also conditions that have been mentioned. Generally speaking, and this is something that we have said in the past, we tend to use the term of shaheed and shuhada too loosely. And as we said, when we look at the Holy Quran, we see that it's very restricted in terms of usage. In fact, it does not even use it in that sense at all in the Holy Quran. Someone dying for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's no reference in the Quran that they are a shaheed. Shaheed is a witness in the Holy Quran. There are people, qutilu fi sabilillah. This is different. This is those who have been slain, those who have been killed in the way of God. This is how the Qur'an talks about it. In the ahadith, there's a lot of mention of shaheed being the person who has been killed, slain in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the case. But even then, we tend to use it a lot more loosely than how our religion wants us to use it. And there are a number of stories, very well known in the seerah, at the time of the Holy Prophet, Imam Ali alayhi salam, others, where they have explained conditions. They have said, for instance, there's this um, man that um, Imam, Imam al-Baqir, alayhi salam, he talked about uh, a man by the name of uh, Quzman. He was known to be a companion of the Holy Prophet, It's a longer story. This is a man who would have fought and fought very bravely and courage- courageously in the Battle of Uhud. 
So Imam al-Baqir salam says that when this man was very severely injured, but people thought that he died in the battle, they came to the Holy Prophet and they told him that so-and-so has died in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What great honors Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to give him. Blessed is he, happy is he that he's going straight to heaven. And the Holy Prophet said he is a man of hell. I have been informed that he is a man who's going to hell. And this was very shocking to them. And then they came back to the Holy Prophet because the man had actually not been killed. He had been severely injured in the battlefield and he had been taken either to his own house or to one of the tribes that were close by that picked him up so that he can go and uh, basically uh, recover from his injuries. So they took care of him. And after a while, there are people who came and he got well enough that they could talk to him and understand what's going on. And when they talked to him, they asked him, you know, you thought, so what gave you this bravery and this courage to fight this way? He had killed maybe six or seven of the mushrikeen before he was uh, injured. So what was it that led to all of this bravery and all of this courage? And he told them, I have only fought to defend the honor of my tribe. My only motivation is that I felt that my tribe was being dishonored and so I fought to defend the honor of my tribe. And then they came to the Holy Prophet and they told him now he has died and in fact he has killed himself. So because he was now injured and he saw that he was injured, he refused to live his life as an injured man. So they say he went and jumped threw himself on weapons that were there and he killed himself this way because he did not want to live with an injury in this world. And the Holy Prophet ﷺ, now this was further confirmation. These are two further confirmations of what the Holy Prophet ﷺ said. And when there, his companions were around him and the news came, he told them, bear witness that I am the Prophet of God. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has informed me this is a man from hell. He will end up in hell. He's not going to heaven. Even though in appearance it may look like he fought in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He did not. His intent had nothing to do with God. And the Holy Prophet has a hadith around this. We have a hadith from the Holy Prophet. We have a hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. We have a hadith from others that say, مَنْ قَاتَلَ لِتَكُونَ كَلِمَةُ اللَّهِ هِيَ That is the person who becomes a shaheed. The one who fights so that the word of God, and this has multiple meanings, the word of God is superior. That la ilaha illallah is superior, that the instructions, the teachings, the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're fighting for Allah, truly for the sake of God. Not for instance, in this case, for your tribe. Or as the Arabs of Jahiliya used to do, and we have many ahadith around this from all multiple of our imams, numerous of our imams that talk about this. If you travel so that you put your hand on a piece of land or that you're able to get some of the wealth of this world, then this is your reward and that's it. Don't expect anything from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is the intent behind your action? What are you trying to do? Where is God in the equation? If it's entirely for God, then to that extent, yes, this is an act for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah accepts all of this, and you are truly the shaheed that is talked about. But where does this come from? What would make you go this far and do what you're doing 
and know that you're doing it for the sake of God. Knowledge. That you're doing this with the right knowledge that provides the right intent. Therefore, the hadith says, when the blood of the martyrs is going to be put on the scale against the ink of the scholars, the ink of the scholars will weigh more heavily. And again, it's an image, but it's a very telling image, very powerful image. You would think that there is nothing that weighs more than the blood, that has more significance. But that blood acquired its significance because of the knowledge that was behind it, that was feeding it. The next hadith, again, talking about the ranks, the positions of the scholars in the afterlife. Here we want to talk about one more way of seeing how scholars, because we started a couple of times now in some of the ahadith, we encountered ahadith that talk about ways in which scholars are similar to prophets. Here's yet another one. So this hadith, and I believe the next one, I don't know if I have two, I only kept two of the ahadith, and we'll see other ones that directly talk about the same thing a little bit later. The topic of intercession. Intercession is one of the distinctions of prophets in the afterlife. And so when you see someone being given the same ability, the same power, the same rank, the same favor, you know that this is one more way there's something similar between what they're doing so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows them to perform a similar role. The first hadith from Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam, he says, إِذَا كَانَ يَوْمُ الْقِيَامَةِ بَعَثَ اللَّهُ عَزَّ وَجَلَّ الْعَالِمَ وَالْعَابِدِ فَإِذَا وَقَفَ بَيْنَ يَدَيِ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلَّ قِيلَ لِلْعَابِدِ انطلق إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ وَقِيلَ لِلْعَالِمْ قِفْ تَشْفَعْ لِلنَّاسِ بِحُسْنِ تَأْدِيبِكَ لَهُمْ so Imam Sadiq says, on the day of resurrection, God the Almighty will resurrect the scholar and the worshipper. So when they stand before God, it will be said to the worshipper, go to paradise. And it will be said to the scholar, stand here and intercede for the people through your good teaching or your training of them. In return for having taught them, trained them, shared knowledge with them, start interceding for these people. That's the first hadith. Second hadith, similar, but it goes in more detail, and then I'll mention some comments. The second hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ. He says, يَبْعَثُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَىٰ الْعَالِمَ وَالْعَابِدْ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ فَإِذَا اجْتَمَعَا عِنْدَ الصِّرَاطِ قِيلَ لِلْعَابِدْ أُدْخُلِ الْجَنَّةِ فَأَنْعِمْ or fan'am fiha bi'ibadatik waqila lil'alim qifha huna fi zumratil anbiya fashfa' fi man ahsanta adabahu fid dunya so this second hadith has a few more details that are not in the first so we combine them together so the holy prophet says on the day of resurrection god will resurrect both the scholar and the worshipper when they gather at the sirat I'm going to come back to this word. It's the path or the way, the sirat, but I'm going to come back to it. It will be said to the worshiper, enter paradise and enjoy its blessings in return for your worship, in exchange for your worship. And it will be said to the scholar, stand here 
among the ranks of the prophets and intercede for those whose manners and behavior you improved in the world. So, a lot of comments to make about this hadith. So, very quickly. The first one has to do with the fact that the hadith says they meet at the sirat. The same sirat that we mentioned in Surah Al-Fatiha. اِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمُ صِرَاطَ الَّذِينَ In verses 6 and 7 of Surah Al-Fatiha. Generally speaking, the way we translate the sirat, we say that the sirat is the way or the path. Right? Guide us on or upon or towards, depending on how you interpret it, the straight path, the right way. Okay, and then the second, the last verse of Surah Al-Fatiha adds more detail. If we look at this Sirat through the narrations, we see that perhaps it's not necessarily that the word is translated wrong, but when we say that it's simply a path or a way, it may not be giving us the full meaning of what the Sirat is. The descriptions that we have in the narrations and even in the many of the verses of the Holy Qur'an goes beyond simply imagining the sirat as a straight path, a straight way upon which we want to walk. Some of the narrations, I'm going to skip over the verses of the Qur'an. The Holy Qur'an talks about the sirat by my counting over 40 times. So each one of these verses, we can bring them together, put them together, and it's going to tell us a whole lot about what the sirat is and how to understand it. Inshallah, we leave that for another day. Okay? And they corroborate what we find in the narrations. So it's not like sometimes there are notions, especially with regards to the everything that happens after death, from the moment of death onwards, because that becomes a hidden world for us. Right? And so we can only rely on what religion says. And we have many, many narrations, and some of these narrations talk about topics that are not addressed in detail in the Holy Qur'an. And so there are people who want to reject those very quickly because they say, well, these are narrations, and who knows if they're authentic or not, and they want to reject the entire topic. In the case of the Sarat, this is certainly not the case. Yes, we have a lot of narrations around it, but the Holy Qur'an talks about it at length in too many verses for us to say that this is simply an image that the Holy Qur'an is using metaphorically. Okay? Keeping in mind the general principle that we have explained in the past, that anything that touches the afterlife, anything that touches the hereafter, there has to be a component, a dimension of metaphor in it. The Holy Qur'an says so. It says we are going to create you in a world which you cannot know, because it's not this world. How can you know it? So the best we can do is to describe it to you in a way that makes you understand it. To each and their ability to understand. Okay? So keeping that in mind, this does not mean, however, that it is entirely fictional. Right? This is not what the Holy Quran is saying. It's saying there is a reality to this. And we're going to present it to you in the clearest, uh, best way for you to understand what it is using the terminology and the wording and the images and the realities that you have in this world. This is the closest thing you have in this world to what's waiting for you in the afterlife. The Sirat is one more of these. So if you go back to 
our teachings in our religion about the Sirat, they say, for instance, that every human being has to cross it. And this is a very important point, by the way. This means that this is part of the journey of being a human being. Inshallah, we're, we're going to come back to that at another time. When you see this, you have to keep in mind, there are those who are horrible, disgusting human beings, and then you have the average of the masses, and then you have the saints, and the messengers, and the prophets, the awliya. So when you see a hadith that talk about, or verses of the Qur'an that talk about something that has to touch every single human being, there is no escape. It's a necessity for every human being. In those cases, there is not even enough of a favor that is granted, let's say, to a prophet or a saint so that they avoid this. Okay? The Holy Quran talks about death, for instance, this way. If you are a soul, you shall taste death. Period. doesn't matter who you are. The Holy Quran then makes a point to add it to the Holy Prophet and it doesn't start with them if you are going to die then of course they are also going to die why are they living a life as though they're not going to die right, so in any case the hadith, the verses of the Quran are very clear every human being must get across this path, this way okay, that's one two, it may be and this hadith is very well known, it may be thinner than a strand of hair, and it may be sharper than the edge of a sword. Okay, so this is to explain the difficulty that may await a human being. If you are asked to walk on a way that is thinner than one strand of hair, that is sharper than the edge of a sword, then should you not be worried? Okay, so we have a hadith all Muslims should know them. We have a hadith related to this. That's the second image. More than that, we are clearly told that there are those who fall from this way. And when they fall, they fall into hell. You fall into the fire. And if you pass across this way, what awaits you on the other side is heaven. It means that's it. You made it on the other side, you are now one step away from heaven. So this way of understanding it, I would argue, makes it not so much just a way or a path, even though we constantly say Salat is simply the correct, the right path or way. It's more of a bridge. You have to get across that bridge. And if you fall, hell is under. And if you get across, then paradise is waiting on the other side. Okay, so that's one image. Beyond this, we have the ahadith that talk about our ability to get across this bridge very significantly varies from one human being to another. This is a bridge that you and I will never see in the same way. It's not like a bridge that we have in this world where you and I stand there and we can objectively measure it and see it because we're all looking at the same thing. What you see and what I see are going to be very different. And your ability to cross it and my ability to cross it are going to be significantly different based on your belief and your knowledge. Based on your actions. This is going to be a very different path. How wide 
or narrow it's going to be depends on your actions. It's as though what you are doing in this world is building that bridge for yourself in the afterlife. The more actions you put in, the more comfortable your crossing is going to be. And the faster that crossing is going to be. No one wants to be on that bridge. No one. So how do you cross it faster and so that there is no risk of you falling? You want to make it as wide as possible. You want to make sure there's ramps on the side. All of that is what you are building with your actions and your knowledge in this world. You're preparing your own bridge. If you go back to the verses of the Quran, you go back to the narrations, they talk about this very clearly. They say the width of the bridge depends on your actions and the speed at which you cross it depends on your actions. And so some categories of people are mentioned just to give us the full spectrum. And of course, there's everything in between. Specifically, the hadith say there are those who will cross the bridge as though they are lightning. How long does it take to see lightning? It's a, it's a part of a second, a fraction of a second. This is how they cross the bridge. That's it. They still have to cross it. But this is how they cross it. And there are those who cross the bridge as though they are on a racing horse, the ahadith say. And there are those who cross the bridge walking. And there are those who cross the bridge on all four. And there are those who hang. They are hanging. Imagine it's like a rope. They hang. And those who hang, the ahadith say, and the fire eats at them. Or eats parts of them, depending on how you understand that hadith. And then there are those who fall. They don't cross the bridge. And we even have verses in the Quran. It depends how they are interpreted, especially in Surah Yasin and elsewhere. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if we wanted to, but it's a very open threat from Allah that seems to be talking about this because we have other ahadith as well as verses of the Quran that talk about the same thing that we would make them blind and so they would not be able to see the, the bridge or their own way. And this is exactly what you have. If you're supposed to cross a very risky bridge and you can't see it and you don't know where you're walking, what's the end result? What are the chances that you're going to get across? Especially if you have to crawl or walk slowly or hang on to a rope. And there are those perhaps who cannot even move. And you're supposed to cross the bridge. And Surah Yasin, it talks about them. It's as though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we will turn them into rocks. And so they would not be able to make any movements. We have verses of the Quran that talk about this. And this is corroborated. What have you prepared for that bridge? Right? And so in this hadith, this is where the alim and the abid meet. And both of them are crossing. But this tells us that when we cross this, this is you as an individual. There are stations, there are positions, there are ranks in the afterlife on the day of resurrection where you're alone. This is you and your actions. That's it. Nothing can help you. And there are some that are collective. It's you as a group. How did you perform? You as a nation. How did you perform? 
So this one, the crossing of the bridge, is individual. It's you and your actions. How good were you in this world? And so this is where the alim and the abid, the hadith says, this is where they meet. So the abid, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the angels tell him, go ahead, cross. And clearly he's going to cross very easily, honored, respected. They tell him, and go and enjoy the bliss of paradise in exchange for all of your hard work and worship. And the scholar, they tell him, no, no, you stand here. First, we want you to intercede. Because this is the ultimate test. There are people who are going to fall in. There are people who can't move and they can't make it. This is where we want the intercession. And that second hadith was clear. He stands with the prophets. This is where the prophets are standing. And they are interceding. So the scholar is asked, you go ahead and intercede. And they tell him, you intercede, you bring in those that you changed. You were able to improve. You were able to teach. And they accepted those teachings. Right? The hadith was very clear. Who did you train? Who did you teach that changed them? Changed their behavior? They became better people. We want you to intercede. You may rescue them. You may save them. Improve their fate. Around the whole notion of sirat, of course, if you go back to, we have many, many hadith related to this. There's a lot that we can say around it. But if you go to Ahlul Bayt, they are unanimous in that the sirat, in some hadith, it's just one word. As-sirat huwa Ali. Imam Ali alayhi sirat in other words, is your knowledge and belief in wilaya. That you accept to take this version of religion from this man. Ali. These narrations come to us from the Imams themselves. They don't even say us. The Imams say the Sirat is Ali. And these ahadith that are specific from the Imams, not about any Imam or the Imam of your time or Ahlul Bayt in general, these ahadith show us the rank of Imam Ali. I would say, even for them, the Sirat is Ali. Okay, so that's a whole discussion that we leave to another time. Here the link with the prophets, inshallah, is clear. We saw it in multiple ahadith. And this one is, again, they are raised, uh, their ahadith said physically, they come back, they are resurrected along with the prophets. They are similar in rewards, as we saw in other ahadith, in distinctions and merits, and intercession, clearly in this hadith, is one more distinction of prophethood. And these people are granted this distinction specifically. One more way that brings you close, closer to prophethood. Third, the distinction in rank once again between the worshipper and the scholar. Very clear. Four, the intercession is not a free-for-all. The intercession is reflective of your own work in this world. Yes, this is a great honor in the afterlife, and I want to come back to this point. It is a great honor, but a great honor resulting from your work. You learned. What did you do with the knowledge? So your intercession is not to everyone. It's to those who were able to benefit from your knowledge. 
you are able to change them, to change their behavior, to change their beliefs. Okay, so therefore the link with action, inshallah, is very clear, keeping in mind what we said before in other ahadith, that this can be direct or indirect. You might teach people, and those people become great, and they teach, you teach 10 people, but one of them teaches a million. You're still getting the reward for all those million. Right? The hadith were very clear about this. And then finally, this is perhaps a slightly more subtle meaning, and I want to say it now because I think we're going to see it in a few of the ahadith. This is perhaps the, the deeper meaning behind these ahadith. What we encounter in the afterlife and the ahadith about the afterlife we should always see it as these ahadith trying to explain to us the reality of something. In this world, this is a world of appearance. We don't see things as they truly are. In this world, it may look like you're sharing information. You're sharing knowledge. It's a teacher and a learner. That's what it looks like. What is really happening, though, is that you are saving people from hell if you're doing a good job. You're taking them away from hell. You're protecting them from hell and making sure that they reach heaven. And so these ahadith, this is what they're saying. This is the idea of the intercession. And I'm going to come back to this point a little bit later. So why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do it this way? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have said, okay, you benefited from so-and-so action, from so-and-so belief, so-and-so helped you. Welcome to paradise. No, it has to go through this scene so that the honor of this person is recognized. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to make sure that in this world, people did not realize what this person was doing. They sacrificed and they worked hard and they became a scholar and they had sincere intentions. All of that is not really clear in this world. It may be the case, it may not be the case. world of appearances. The reality, the truth of it will only show in the afterlife. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants all of this to be very clear in the afterlife. And so he has to make it this way so that those that you benefited from, they come to the forefront. And we can really see who benefited from whom, who learned from whom, who influenced whom. And we're going to see a lot of ahadith related to this. This is one of them. So keep this in mind. This is intentional. There's a whole seen, there's a whole image that is being described. And it helps us a lot in understanding the roles, the realities, things that are perhaps hidden in our world. From Imam al-Askari alayhi salam, next hadith, Imam al-Askari alayhi salam, from Imam al-Rada alayhi salam. Imam al-Askari says that Imam al-Rada says, يُقَالُ لِلْعَابِدْ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ نِعْمَ الرَّجُلُ كُنْتْ هِمَّتُكَ ذَاتُ نَفْسِكَ وَكَفَيْتَ مَأُونَتَكَ فَادْخُلِ الْجَنَّةِ وَيُقَالُ لِلْفَقِيهِ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِلُ لِأَيْتَامِ آلِ مُحَمَّدِ اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد الهادي لضعفاء محبيهم ومواليهم قف حتى تشفع لكل من أخذ عنك أو تعلم منك فيقف فيد فيدخل 
الجنه معه في امن وفي امن وفي امن حتى قال عشرة وهم الذين اخذوا عنه علومه واخذوا عمن اخذ عنه وعمن اخذ عمن اخذ عنه الى يوم القيامه so Imam al-Askari alayhi salam says that Imam al-Rada alayhi salam has said on the day of judgment it will be said to the worshipper how excellent of a person were you ni'ma ar-rajul kunt himmatuka dhatu nafsik your purpose your endeavor was yourself your determination was about yourself enter paradise okay i want to come back to this inshallah and then the imam said ala inna al-faqih i think i skipped this when i read the arabic ala inna al-faqih man afada ala an-nas khayra wa anqadhahum min a'da'ihim wa waffara alayhim ni'ma jinan allah ta'ala Indeed, the true jurist is one whose good emanates towards the people, who, protect, who protects them from their enemies, who provides them with the blessings of God's heavens. He secures God's pleasure for them. That's a very specific description of who the faqih is. He secures the pleasures of heaven, the pleasures of paradise for these people. Okay, that now we understand the role. The jurist will be told, O protector of the orphans of the family of Muhammad. I'm going to come back to this. O guide to the weak among those who love and follow them. Stand here so that you may intercede for all those who took from you and learned from you. So he will stand there admitting with himself into paradise, I'm going to say the word in Arabic because I'm going to explain it a little bit later, he will admit with him into paradise, fi'am wa fi'am wa fi'am, and the rawi, the narrator says, and he repeated the word ten times. Okay, he repeated it ten times. And these are the people who acquired or who accepted, who acquired from him his knowledge, and who accepted or acquired from those who accepted from him his knowledge, and who acquired from those who accepted from those his knowledge. And this is the indication once again that it's not only those who learn directly from the scholar, you may have learned from the student of the scholar, or you may have learned from the student of the student of the scholar. That's what it means. And so on until the day of resurrection. So this can go on and on and on over generations. That knowledge that that scholar left in the world, this is how it's now being used. Okay? So a few points again. I'm going to try not to spend too much time on this hadith. There's really a lot to cover. First, there's a beautiful treatment of the worshipper. So right away from the beginning of the hadith, يُقَالُ لِلْعَابِدِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ نِعْمَ الرَّجُلُ كُنْتِ In that stressful, scary world, they come to the worshipper and they tell the worshipper, how excellent of a man were you? Okay, so that's already beautiful. The next line, I think, has two interpretations. They're connected. But if we want to be precise, there's two different interpretations, and each of them is a huge lesson. 
a very important trait of who this worshipper is. The line is Himmetuka Dhatu Nefsik, which can mean two things. Either it means your your concern, your preoccupation, your energy was about yourself. And this is in a positive way. It means that you were not concerned, you were not distracted, you were not worried about anyone else. You understood the point of this world. You were focused on yourself. You were focused on the right thing. You put all of your determination and your endeavor and your plans. Al-Himma is your endeavor. What do you aspire to? Where do you put your energy to achieve your goal? That nafsik was all about yourself, your soul, saving your soul, improving yourself. All of your energy was there. He's being praised for this. This is how they're praising him. This is very important. And this to me, by itself, this is a sign of the worshipper and a sign of success. This person made it. The ultimate test, the afterlife. They made it. Or we say, they're telling him, your energy came from within. Either we say your energy was about, your motivation, your determination, your drive was about yourself, or from within yourself. And that's why I said it is both. But there's two lessons here that we can draw from this. The Arabic allows for both. But if we want to translate it into English, it has these two meanings. Your energy, your determination, your drive was about yourself or from within yourself. No one needed to constantly come back and remind you and push you and pull you and scare you and there's a carrot and there's a stick and there's a... It came from within. You understood and you moved based on your own self-discipline, self-determination. You did what you had to do and it came from inside you. Okay, so he's being praised for this. And to me, there are two important lessons here for all of us from those two interpretations of those lines, those three words. And I would say both are very simple and both are very hard. Sometimes we think that simple things are easy. Simple things can be the hardest. Secondly, it talks about the true jurist. The hadith in Arabic said, Ala inna al-faqih. Truly, the scholar is, or if we want to be very literal in how we translate this, we would say truly, the scholar is only the one who meets this description. Man afada The one who emanates his good to the people. So it's not just about how much knowledge you carry. That does not make you a faqih. This might be making you a faqih in this world. It doesn't make you a faqih in the afterlife. To have that rank in the afterlife is how much did you emanate? How much did you use that to spread good in the world with the knowledge that you had? And then the hadith continued, وَأَنْقَذَهُمْ مِنْ أَعْدَائِهِمْ You are 
saving, you are protecting, you are defending people against their enemies. So this is not physical, of course. This is a scholar. This is someone who's doing this with minds, with hearts. The one who makes it easy for them to benefit from the blessings of the gardens or the paradise of God. You make that way a shortcut for them. You make it easy for them to benefit from the blessings of paradise. And The person who secures, who guarantees for them the pleasure of God, the satisfaction of God. This is the true faqih, according to this narration. Very important. The next point. There's a mention here, and I'm going to go through a couple of hadith, something we've talked about in the past, but just in case it's not clear or we need to clarify it a little bit more. This is an expression that is important in the tradition and the narrations of Ahl al-Bayt salam. Because sometimes it comes without qualifiers. Sometimes it's mentioned without an explanation. Here there is enough context for us that we know what the explanation is. In other ahadith, it's been defined. And this is, by the way, one of the most important ways to recognize the scholar. Ahlul Bayt tell us. This is not you know, me coming up with theories. Ahlul Bayt tell us that the way to know that this is truly one of our scholars, you will recognize them by their ability to recognize ma'aridha kalamina or lahna kalamina. They know the multiple meanings behind what we say. Ahl al-Bayt have a very special way of talking. You have to know what they mean with the words they use. When they say that this is an orphan or one of our orphans, they don't mean this is someone who doesn't have a father or a father and a mother. There's another meaning to it. Here it's very clear because of the context. We have a hadith that they don't mention that context. But we have other hadith that defined those terms. So you have to have all of those in mind when you read the hadith. You know what they mean by this word. So who is the orphan? We're going to read a couple of them just to make it clear. Next, we define the orphan. According to the Shia traditions, the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt, the orphan here, the true orphan, is the person who has been cut off from the imam or someone who does not have access to their imam. The imam may be there, but you don't have access to the imam. Or the imam is simply not there. Which is a huge hint that Ahl al-Bayt were giving in their times that there will come a time when your imam will not be there. Okay, so they say very clearly, who is the orphan? It's the person who is cut off. And they are described usually in two ways because those two ways go together. They are orphan and they are weak. Al-Du'afa, or sometimes al-du'afa min shi'atina, you would think it's probably, it's not physical. Al-du'afa is most likely, to most people's minds, they would say it's someone who doesn't have enough money. They're poor. They're socially weak. They're economically weak. Yes, that is the case. But that's not what really matters. And the orphan without the father or without the father and the mother, that is horrible of a condition to be in. And this is not to discourage from helping the orphans. But the second layer and the deeper layer is that you are an orphan because you are cut off from your true source. Mental. 
intellectual, belief, faith, spirituality, you're cut off. So you're an orphan. You have no one to sustain you and to keep you alive, as we'll see in other ahadith. To keep you alive. To live without that link to Ahl al-Bayt and their teachings is not to be alive in that sense. The one who sustains them, the one who keeps them, upholds them, maintains them, this is what the hadith is going to say. So in the philosophy or in the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt this is going to be the role of the scholar. I understand that I am now like an orphan or someone who is weak and I need that connection. It has to come to me through the person who best represents the teachings of the imam, the scholar. And that's why we spent a bit of time saying, therefore, the role of the scholar cannot be to spread doubt and to spread more confusion and to make religion even more ambiguous and to people make people question their own faith and their own belief. You're doing the opposite of what they're telling you. You are a true jurist and a true scholar when you're doing the opposite. What would you do to an orphan or someone who's weak? Would you make their condition even more difficult? No. Your job as a scholar and a jurist is not to confuse people further, to create even more doubts, to make them doubt and question and reject their faith. Because you think that this is the best way for you to show your scholarship and your genius and your intellect, which can be very easy to do. But this is exactly the danger. And that's why we have so many ahadith saying, remember, the point of this is that you guide people. This is how your good emanates towards others. This is the true and only jurist, the hadith just said. And here, of course, very clearly in this hadith, and we will see it in other hadith as well, the connection is not to yourself. You're not calling people to yourself. You're not inviting people to become your followers. You're a conduit. You're a pipe. <laughs> you're an intermediary. You're a medium. You're a channel. <clears throat> you're bringing people to the imams. You're bringing people to the truth that God revealed. That makes you a true jurist. That makes you a true scholar. And this is, by the way, inshallah, maybe one day we talk about it, not, we'll see. We have a hadith where they come to the imam and they tell the imam, we have heard a hadith from your forefathers, from the Holy Prophet which say that someone should not be taking money in return for teaching. And one of these ahadith, very well known, to Imam Sadiq he tells him what is happening. They say, well, some of your followers, some of your students, some of your Shia actually do this. And in one of them, the Imam says, if the person who, let's say you send your, you're going to learn from someone, he says, if this person were to completely ransom their children in return for the knowledge they're receiving, that would still be okay. It's not about the money you receive or not. So in that specific hadith, the imam says, this hadith is about those who either are spreading lies or calling people to themselves. They are making themselves imams. They're creating another source of truth. 
if these students of mine are teaching people the Quran and they're bringing people back to religion and back to Ahlul Bayt yes, they deserve every dinar, every dirham and much more than what you're giving them. Don't stop giving them. That's not the issue. Okay, so in this case, once again, here it's very clear. The role of the jurist is to bring back to Ahlul Bayt not to call to themselves. Very quickly, this one is just a reminder. This jurist had to act with the knowledge that they had. The knowledge by itself was not enough. You have to do enough to guide and change people. Five. And this one is a little more subtle. The people had to accept. You can teach all you want. If people are not accepting, they're not accepting. And in Arabic, this is very clear because it says, they tell him. See, he accepted. That's why I said what I translated. I said it's someone who acquired the knowledge from you or someone who accepted the knowledge from you. That's a better translation. This means that you are actively accepting. You're letting it have an impact on you and you're doing something about it. Okay? So this is another condition. And then this word of fi'am. Fi'aman wa fi'aman wa fi'ama. We have it in a few narrations in the school of Ahlul Bayt And in fact, we have its explanation. The Imam tells the narrator in another hadith, completely irrelevant to this one. It's a hadith related to the event of Ghadir. There's a mention of Fi'am. And then the Imam asks the narrator, he tells him, do you know what Fi'am are? How good is your Arabic? Basically, he's telling the narrator. And the narrator says, no, I don't know what Fi'am is. So I'm using the same term so that now you'll remember it when you hear it. The Imam tells him, a fi'am, one fi'am is 100,000 people. It's a group of 100,000 people. It's referred to as fi'am. So when the Imam says, and this person is going to intercede, fi'aman wa fi'aman wa fi'aman, and he repeats it 10 times, 10 times 100,000 is 1 million. So the Imam is saying, this is how many people this person may intercede two in the afterlife. So he's saying as many and perhaps more because this continues, this person is gone as we saw last week, but those who benefit from their knowledge over the generations continue until the day of resurrection, this hadith said. So this goes on. And as we said, why this scene? Why, does Allah subhanahu, why doesn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just give the rewards to everyone and end it? But we could ask this about everything. Everything that happens, especially from the moment of death. The manner in which the soul is taken out. Everything that awaits us in this intermediary world, Alam al-Barzakh. Everything that happens upon the resurrection. Inshallah, one day we'll go in a much more detailed series on the resurrection. The Rawayat clearly say there are 50 stations, Yom al-Qiyamah. There are 50 stations that we go through. Each one of them is a full world on its own. So why? Why does it have to happen this way? One short answer to this, or two short answers, and they're connected, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to relive everything, but this time by seeing the truth, by seeing things as they really are. That's one. And two, therefore, we truly understand the ranks of people. 
In this world, you can never really know the ranks of people. This way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ensures that, for instance, the scholar is honored, recognized. This is a true scholar based on the right criteria. The jurist, as Ahl al-Bayt say, this is a true jurist. We may think someone is a jurist now, and they are not. And we may think someone is not, not a jurist or a true scholar or teacher now, and they really are, based on these definitions. Two ahadith, very quickly, I won't comment on them. I'll force myself not to comment on them. But just to establish this idea of who is the orphan or the weak in the school of Ahlul Bayt, just so that you have the ahadith. <clears throat> the first hadith from Imam Al-Askari, عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وآله أشد من يتم اليتيم الذي انقطع عن أبيه يتم يتيم انقطع عن إمامه ولا يقدر على الوصول إليه ولا يدري كيف حكمه فيما يبتلى به من شرائع دينه ألا فمن كان من شيعتنا عالما بعلومنا وهذا الجاهل بشريعتنا المنقطع عن مشاهدتنا يتيم في حجره ألا فمن هداه وأرشده وعلمه شريعتنا كان معنا في الرفيق الأعلى. So in this hadith, Imam al-Askari says the Holy Prophet said, one who is able to guide and teach an ignorant person regarding the laws and the teachings of our religion, I'm skipping the, the beginning part, more oppressed, the hadith starts, more oppressed than the orphan who has lost his father, or weaker than the orphan who has lost his father is the orphan who has been severed or cut off from his imam, unable to reach him, unaware of how to practice his religious duties. So whoever among our followers knows our teachings, so that's the first part of being a scholar, you have the knowledge, yet this ignorant one is cut off from witnessing our guidance. An orphan confined in hijr, in his hijr, as though he is sitting in his lap. You have access to this person. You can guide this person. You can teach this person. Thus, whoever guides him, instructs him, teaches him our teachings, is going to be with us in the highest of companies. Okay, Rafiq al-A'la could be, you know, in heaven, in paradise. That's one hadith, no comment. But enough to explain the idea of an orphan. Another hadith. From Imam al-Sajjad a longer hadith that is very important and I'm not going to make any comments on it. Imam al-Sajjad says, Ali ibn al-Husayn, قال عليه السلام, أوحى الله تعالى إلى موسى عليه السلام, حببني إلى خلقي, وحبب خلقي إلي, قال يا رب كيف أفعل, قال ذكرهم آلائي ونعمائي ليحبوني, فلئن ترد آبقا عن بابي أو ضالا عن فنائي, this is the first half of the hadith. I translate and then we look at the second half. Imam Sajjad says, God Almighty revealed to Prophet Musa make me beloved to my creatures and make my creatures love me. So he said, Musa said, O oh Lord, and how do I do this? He said, remind them of my gifts and my bounties so that they may love me. For if you were to return a fugitive who has run away from my door, or bring back a lost soul, I don't want to say a soul, okay, someone who is lost, 
away from my entrance, it is better for you than the worship of a hundred years during which you fast its days and worship its nights to bring one person back to me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. This is the first half of the hadith, second half of the hadith. So this is important for its own sake. And this is very important for a lot of reasons. One of them is that, generally speaking, and this is one of our biggest mistakes, when we acquire knowledge, when we have centers, when we have abilities, when we have an infrastructure, when we have anything, we, if we were to compare where the energy is going versus where it could potentially go, we see that there's a lot more work to do in rethinking how we do our activities, how we spread our knowledge, who do we invite. We tend to focus, and it's important to do so. We're not saying to, neg to be negligent towards those who are already guided, who already know the path, who are already followers of Ahlul Bayt. They already know the truth. They just need a little bit of a reminder, a little bit of a polishing, a little bit extra knowledge so that it's more refined and they go a little bit further away. But this description that we just saw in this hadith does not always match these people. These people are usually already pretty good. They're in okay shape, inshallah. And will they will stay in an okay shape. These people are already guided. They don't need a lot of pushing and pulling. And I'm not sure that when we read the hadith, when you see the hadith say, you bring back someone who is a lost soul back to me. Or you find a fugitive who has run away from my door, that this is a person that comes to our mind. The good Shi'i, who may be sometimes negligent about his prayers, or he may commit a sin here and there, we all need the reminders, of course. But you wouldn't say, you wouldn't describe this person as being the lost soul. And so we see that our energy, our knowledge, is not spent bringing the lost souls back to God, where we could do a lot more. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling Musa alayhi salam, go out of your way to find those people and bring them back to me. Each one of them is better for you than 100 years of pure worship to bring me back one lost soul. Okay, so this is the first part of the hadith that I said I would not comment on. The second part of the hadith. Qala Musa alayhi salam, قال موسى عليه السلام ومن هذا العبد الآبق منك قال العاصي المتبرد so he's asking for more clarification قال فمن الضال عن فنائك قال الجاهل بإمام زمانه تعرفه والغائب عنه بعدما عرفه الجاهل بشريعة دينه تعرفه شريعته وما يعبد به ربه ويتوصل به إلى مرضاته قال علي عليه السلام which means Imam al-Sajjad فأبشروا معاشر علماء شيعتنا بالثواب الأعظم والجزاء الأوفر So here, after the first part of the hadith Prophet Musa alayhi salam says and who is the fugitive who has from, who is the fugitive among your servants that you want me to bring back to you Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said he is the defiant sinner or the stubborn sinner. Someone who has gone very far in their, world, in their world or life of sin. Right? And he asked, and who is the lost away from your entrance? He said, and this is the key, he said, the one who is ignorant of the imam of his time. You make him know his imam. 
or the one whose imam is absent, though he may already know who his imam is, but he does not know the laws of his religion. You make those laws known to him and explain to him how to worship his Lord and how to achieve his pleasure and satisfaction. Then the imam said, So rejoice, O scholars, from among our followers for the greatest of rewards and the most abundant of recompense. Next hadith. Back to the ahadith. I'm going to try to wrap up the topic today so that we move on to community next time. Back to the scholars in the afterlife. Again, more of the same. This one is a stronger imagery. I gave you the general rule. Again, from Imam al-Askari alayhi salam. Now, you're going to see the imagery. Imam al-Askari alayhi salam وقال الحسن بن علي عليهم السلام So he is narrating from Imam al-Mujtaba, Imam al-Hasan, son of Imam Ali alayhi salam. يأتي علماء شيعتنا القوامون لضعفاء محبينا وأهل ولايتنا يوم القيامة والأنوار تسطع من تيجانهم على رأس كل واحد منهم تاج بهاء I'm going to cut it up so that it's not too long. Imam al-Askari alayhi salam says it was narrated that Imam al-Hasan, he said, peace be upon him, on the day of resurrection, the scholars among our followers, those who sustain or those who maintain the weak among our lovers and the people of our wilaya, our guardianship, will come to the fore. Lights will be shining from their crowns because on the head of each one of them, there will be a crown of beauty. The radiance, the light of these crowns, will spread into the pathways of the afterlife and its dwellings a, distant of, a distance of 300,000 years. فَشُعَاعُ تِيجَانِهِمْ يَنْبَثُّ فِيهَا كُلَّهَا فَلَا يَبْقَى هُنَاكَ يَتِيمٌ قَدْ كَفَلُوهُ وَمِنْ ظُلْمَةِ الْجَهْلِ أَنْقَذُوهُ وَمِنْ حِيرَةِ التَّيْهِ أَخْرَجُوهُ إِلَّا تَعَلَّقَ بِشُعْبَةٍ مِنْ أَنْوَارِهِمْ I'm going to continue this a little bit later. So the radiance of their crowns will spread all over the pathways and the dwellings of the afterlife. And there shall remain. So what is this radiance? What is this light? It's their knowledge and what it impacted in this world. And there shall remain no orphan whom they took in and whom they rescued from the darkness of ignorance, whom they extracted from the confusion of misguidance. This is in the afterlife. So as this light spreads, it has rays, except, so each one of those, those orphans that were rescued in the life, in this world, except that they will hold on, they will grab to a strand of that light. And these rays, these strands of light, will raise them high until they reach the edges over paradise. ثُمَّ تُنْزِلُهُمْ عَلَى مَنَازِلِهِمُ الْمُعَدَّةِ فِي جُوَارِ أَسَاتِيذِهِمْ وَمُعَلِّمِيهِمْ Then the lights will descend them. So the lights will carry them as they grab onto them. They will raise them and they will descend them into the ranks or into the positions that were prepared for them. Beside their teachers and their trainers. وَبِحَضْرَةِ أَئِمَّتِهِمْ الَّذِينَ كَانُوا أَئِمَّتِهِمُ الَّذِينَ كَانُوا يَدْعُونَ إِلَيْهِمْ 
in the presence of the imams to whom they used to invite, they used to call. And this image is a lot clearer. Okay, except that you can't jump into this, this image without having the premises for it. Now we know who the orphan is. Now we know who the weak is. Now we understand what knowledge is and how it spreads. Okay, and so we see it in its true format in the afterlife. So we've talked about the imagery that we find in the afterlife in many of the narrations. This one is very clear. And secondly, you see the great distinction. This hadith, once again, a reminder. Why does God do it this way? It's so that there is nothing that we can describe here in this world than to say, you know, someone is being treated like a king. They're coming there with a crown on their head. And this is going to be a crown of beauty. And light will come out of this crown. And it will travel this distance. This is all a description of knowledge. And the effect of their knowledge in this world as it is seen or as it shows in the afterlife. The emphasis in this hadith once again was Ahlul Bayt alayhum Throughout the hadith, it's subtle. Until the end, it's very clear. They sit beside their teachers and their trainers, because both words are mentioned in this way, their teachers and the trainers who used to call for or towards their imams. Again, it's all about Ahlul Bayt Bring people back to Ahlul Bayt The description that we saw was about those who are weak and orphan. Now we know who the weak and orphan are. It's someone who is cut off from their imam and you are bringing them closer to their imam, period, which can apply to all of us because all of us are cut off from our imam. Okay, that's in short. And the way to rescue the people in the hadith is very clear. So the rescuing happening in this world was described that you're rescuing them from confusion, from being lost, from the darkness of ignorance, what happens in the afterlife, you're rescuing them with knowledge. This is what it looks like in this world. In the afterlife, this is what you grab onto physically and it will elevate you into and bring you into the position that is prepared for you in the afterlife, which has a, its own discussion that we will talk about, inshallah, in the future. How every human, the rawayat say, when you enter into this world, there's a place that will be prepared for you in heaven and a place that will be prepared for you in hell. And you get to choose which one to keep and who is going to inherit the other one. And the Quran talks about those who inherit. The ruayat say those who are inheriting are the ones who are inheriting one of your two one of one of your two homes. Which one are you leaving behind? The one in hell or the one in heaven? You yours is the choice to make. And then the gathering in the afterlife, the way you gather, the people who are around you, is going to be based on knowledge. Who did you learn from? Who did you share the knowledge from? All of that is going to be replicated in the afterlife. Okay? So you are gathered with your own sources of knowledge who are themselves gathered with their own sources of knowledge and so on and so forth. And here the merits for the role of the scholar is that they were able to spread knowledge, not just to acquire knowledge, to spread knowledge, to spread guidance. And that's why I think the hadith makes a point to say to use these terms. It doesn't say just scholars. It says those who train. It specifically uh, distinguishes them for this role, that they are imparting and knowledge and training people, changing lives, which guides people to heaven through the teachings of Ahlul Bayt. Last hadith. I'll stop with this one. 
from Imam al-Hassan al-Askari السلام, and I insist on this hadith because we're going through al-Iyam al-Fatimiyya from Fatima al-Zahra السلام, this hadith is about Fatima al-Zahra from Imam al-Hassan al-Askari السلام, he says وحضرت امرأة عند الصديقة فاطمة عليه السلام فقالت إن لي والدة ضعيفة وقد التبس عليها في أمر صلاتها شيء وقد بعثت بعثتني إليك أسألك so there's a woman Imam al-Askar says a woman came to the truthful one Fatima al-Zahra peace be upon her and she said I have a weak mother who has become confused about some matters regarding her prayers so she has sent me to ask you about them فسألت فأجابتها عن ذلك ثم ثنت فأجابتها ثم ثلثت إلى أن عشرت فأجابت ثم خجلت من الكثرة وقالت لا أشق عليك يا بنت رسول الله so she asked her question, Fatima al-Zahra answered. She asked a second question and a third, and she went on asking ten questions. And Fatima al-Zahra answering each one of the questions. And then she felt embarrassed for asking too many questions, and so she said, I do not want to burden you, O daughter of the Messenger of God. فقالت Fatima alayhisalam, Hati sali amma badalaki. Go ahead, ask as you please. أَرَأَيْتِ مَنِ الَّذِي يَصْعَدُ يَوْمًا إِلَى سَطْحٍ بِحِمْلٍ ثَقِيلٍ وَكِرَاهُ مِئَةَ أَلْفِ دِينَارٍ أَيَثْقَلُ عَلَيْهِ So she tells her, imagine, for imagine, the reason why I tell you go on and ask as you please, for imagine, if you saw someone who has to carry a heavy load to the roof of their house, but the load was 100,000 dinar, would he consider that to be too heavy of a load to carry? Too heavy of a burden to carry? No, because they're happy with that load. Who doesn't want 100,000 dinar? It may seem heavy, but no one will pay attention to how heavy it is because of how much money it is. So she tells her, imagine if you saw someone who has to carry a heavy load to the roof, but that load was 100,000 dinar. Would he consider that too heavy a load to carry? The woman said, no. فقالت لا. فقالت أكريت أنا لكل مسألة بأكثر ما بين الثرى إلى العرش لؤلؤا فأحرى أن لا يثقل عليه So she said then for every question that I answer I will have earned a greater loan or load a greater load than jewels stacked between the earth and God's throne She's giving her an image she can understand she says, imagine instead of the 100,000 that you're carrying to the top of your roof, what I'm getting in return for answering each one of your questions is as though there are jewels that are stacked from this earth, from the ground, from the thara, from the sand, all the way to God's throne, all the way to the highest of heavens. You're just stacking up jewels. This is for every question you're asking me. So I am more worthy of not considering this, this too heavy of a burden. سمعت أبي صلى الله عليه وآله يقول إن علماء شيعتنا يحشرون فيخلع عليهم من خلع الكرامات على قدر كثرة علومهم وجدهم في إرشاد عباد الله So I heard my father صلى الله عليه وآله uh, the messenger of God say when the scholars among our Shia will be resurrected the coverings of honor الخلع would be today like they would call it a toga Right? It's like, or abaya. 
that you wear something as, and it's a, it's a dress or a garment of prestige and honor that, that is put on you. The Romans would wear that as a sign of honor. And today when you graduate, they make you wear one, right? Why? It's a toga. It comes from that idea that this is a garment of honor. This is what the Holy Prophet is saying. So he says, I heard, she said, I heard my father say when the scholars among my Shia will be resurrected, the coverings of honor will be placed upon them in proportion to their in proportion to the amount of their knowledge and the efforts in guiding God's servants. And then she added, Some of them will have a thousand thousand coverings of light placed upon them. Okay, so a million. A million coverings of light placed upon this person. Then the caller of our Lord will call out, so, after these scholars have been covered with the coverings of light, up to a million coverings of light, the hadith says, then the caller of our Lord will call out, O supporters or O sponsors of the orphans of Al-Muhammad, of the family of Muhammad. You see the recurrent theme? That's why we say, if you know the terminology of Ahl al-Bayt, you will find yourself across all of the ahadith. They use the same terminology. Okay? O supporters of the orphans of the family of Muhammad, those who revived them when they were cut off from their fathers, who are their imams. The hadith says, those who were cut off from their fathers, who are the true orphans? Yes, it's horrible a horrible condition to be an orphan in general, but this is an orphan who was cut off from their imam. And so you came to, the hadith says, انتعاش is what? When there are people go to, you go to the hospital, you're in a critical condition, they have to put you on life support today. This is the term we use. The hadith is saying, you who have provided the life support to these people. That's it. It's a weak orphan. Someone who is cut off. They have no way of staying alive. That's why I said earlier that the orphan is going to be someone who needs to be given life in this school of thought. Okay, so this hadith is very clear. Ayyuhal kafilun. Okay, so you maintain, you sponsor. Then it says, Anna'ishuna lahum. Okay, the ones who you are the ones who give them life support. You have kept them alive when they were cut off from their fathers who were or who are their imams. Those are your students and the orphans whom you maintained, supported and kept alive. Place on them the coverings of knowledge that you passed on them in the world. So replay. We're going to replay the same tape. What did you do in the world? You gave them knowledge and they accepted it, we want you to do the same, but now it's not knowledge that you impart. You're going to put, to the extent knowledge 
of knowledge that they took from you, you're going to place coverings of light upon them. So place on them the coverings of knowledge that you passed on to them in the world. So they will place upon each one of them as many coverings of light as knowledge they acquired from them until some of them will receive 100,000 coverings of light. And so will the orphans themselves do. They will also place coverings of light upon all those who learn from them. Okay? So this hadith from Fatima al-Zahra insha'Allah wraps up our topic regarding the merits of the scholar, the favors of the scholar, the teacher in Islam. And with this we are done with this part of the discussion. We've spent over 30 lectures talking about the place, the role, significance, importance, merits, responsibilities, characteristics of the scholar and the teacher in Islam. And now, inshallah, we want to move to what we said, our final quick discussion to bring those two together with one more layer. The learner and the teacher are part of something greater, the community. And so we want to talk about not community in general. Inshallah, we'll have other discussions on that much later in the series when we talk about the social dimension in religion. Now we're focused on the community of knowledge. This knowledge of the learner, this knowledge of the teacher, does not live in a vacuum. It lives in a community. So what does that community of knowledge look like? This is, inshallah, the next heading. And we'll try to move quickly. There's a few points that we want to make there. And then we will move towards the types of knowledge that our religion has wants us to focus on and prioritize. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين Questions, concerns, comments تفضلوا It's not directly linked to today's lecture but in general to a scholar I heard a story like a long time ago about the person that wrote Qatih al-Jinan um, the book itself is not um, um, like one of a kind. Like there's a lot of book of idea that are written by different scholars, but this one happens to be one of those books that are in everybody's house. Um, so the the story that I found interesting about the scholar that I read, I don't know how true it is, but hopefully it is, <laughs> is um, that um, when he was coming to to write it, um, he he performed everything that he put into the book before he put it into the book and then he published it and perhaps that's why it got so much blessing that it's in almost every household with the Quran with everything else um, talking about how today like um, the the level of blessing every single person that's soul is saved or saved because of you or how much you bring them closer to Ahlul Bayt um, you might want your the not your knowledge but the conduit that you're offering to be more uh, available not for selfish reasons but for or it is selfish but like for um, for those reasons that you get more and more hasanat per thing so it would it's more toward, uh, connects, I think, to the beginning of our lectures about uh, knowledge and so on in terms of um, um, the significance of or perhaps when somebody uh, acts on the knowledge that they are trying to teach, how much Allah will help uh, replicate that and, and make it 
grow like and then it keeps going and more and more and more. Um, uh, so it was just, I don't know, it's not really a question, but it's just more an observation that I see because like I, then I see, um, like uh, we talked about it before, but like Malcolm X in terms of, uh, I feel like is a perfect case study for what we're studying in terms of a person that was a student and then became, let's say, a scholar to a certain degree. Um, uh, and to one level or not, he was very, um, it was very simple, um, his, his approach, although I don't want to say simple because he's a very complex person, uh, but why I feel like he, he became so great or why people view him so great is because he acted on everything that he was trying to spread. So the combination of those, um, like if you take care of your, your the, the knowledge part and the acting and trying to teach, it's almost like there's a guarantee that Allah will help spread your conduit to Ahlul Bayt. And I'm assuming that hopefully that there's some, some truth to that. Um, excellent observation and question. Uh, the idea that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help your teachings spread further and impact people's lives a lot more if you're actually acting on the knowledge yourself and that may impact people more than just the knowledge itself. Um, as you said, yes, we covered this uh, earlier in the series and we said, so there's a number of different angles here going on. The first one has to do with you. And there's two sides to it. You as someone who carries the knowledge and you want to impact others with that knowledge, it would be such a shame that others are benefiting from your knowledge and you're not. Yes, you get the reward of them getting your knowledge, but we went through many ahadith and the image was not a pretty one. And this is mainly, inshallah, we're not talking about cases where, you know, you're talking about halal and haram. Let's say you're talking about things that are recommended, things that are better. Okay, there's this thawab, there is the rewards around it. In those cases, it would be a shame that they are benefiting from this and you are not. You tell people read more Quran, but you don't read Quran, and they are affected by this, and they go read Quran, and you still don't. As we said, you know, they're, you're going to be the one that the, some of the narrations you'll remember, they said it's like, right? Like the, you're the one who allows people to benefit from your actions. You're the donkey who makes the mill go round and round, but you'd never benefit from the mill yourself. You're just the donkey attached to it, but because of what you do, they benefit. And the Holy Quran talks about this. Those who have been given the knowledge, they carry the knowledge, and others may come and carry the knowledge from them and benefit from their own knowledge, but they don't benefit from their own knowledge. A donkey who's carrying scripts, scriptures, books, but the donkey can't read the books they're carrying. Right? So you're passing on the knowledge, you're carrying the knowledge from one spot to another, you're passing it on to others. You will get reward that you have passed it on to others, but you're losing out yourself if you don't do that. That's one. And as I said, inshallah, we're only talking about things that are recommended and discouraged versus things that are haram and halal. Because in that case, it's obligatory, and then this would, I would very you know, clearly say you're falling in nifaq. You're telling people pray and you don't pray. You're telling people fast and you don't fast. This is nifaq, right? Like this is 
outright going contrary to something that Allah says you must do and you do not, you're starting to fall quickly in nifaq wal-ayadabillah. That's, that's the first layer. The second layer is uh, when you talk about um, the person who benefits or not from you. So if I want to take myself as an example, sometimes I'm going to see someone who is saying something, who is teaching something. I should more focus, as a learner, I should more focus on is this information correct and useful to me more than and how is this person conducting themselves. It would be great and it would affect me more if they actually did what they're preaching. Of course, and this is the importance of it. And that's why there are so many ahadith about it. But who cares? If I'm strong enough and good enough, I focus on is the information good and I have no other sources to it. If I can find the perfect package, great. The package where I know this person for sure, he lives by these principles. Everything that they preach, they do. Great, that's exactly what I want. But that's not always available. Perhaps there's a more efficient way, effective way, stronger way of getting that information. But I know this is not the best, most clean and pure source of it. Do I let it all of it go? Well, if there's no alternative or the alternative is not good enough, no. This is where as a learner, I have to focus on how good is the information that I am receiving. Okay, and, then I, and this is where we see a lot of our teachings in our religion. Focus on what has been said, not who said it, right? You know the truth, you don't know the truth by the men, you know the men by the truth. Know the truth and you'll know, you can rate the men. Unless it's Imam Ali alayhi salam, right? That's the only exception. Otherwise, know the truth, go after the truth. And we saw so many ahadith, be objective. You're a learner, you look for knowledge, you look for truth wherever you find it. It can't become, the reason I say this is, don't make this an excuse. I won't learn from so-and-so because their conduct is not perfect. You know, the fat, unhealthy doctor is coming to you and telling you you have to get in shape because otherwise you're going to have health problems. You can tell, you know, the ad hominem, as they say in philosophy, you can tell the person, but who are you to tell me this? Or you can say, well, regardless of who you are, what you're telling me is true. I'm going to focus on what you're saying and I'm going to go get in shape because I want to benefit from the advice you're giving me. It's still good knowledge. Yes, it's not coming from the right source, but it's still good knowledge. And al-hikmah dalatul mu'min. The mu'min is always looking for it. If it's wisdom, you want to grab onto it. Okay? So this is the, the second reason I say this. The third reason, of course, whether it's Shaykh al-Qummi, there are so many, there are dozens if not hundreds of these hadith. Our scholars, of course, are the ones who try to show all of this the most in their lives. There are many, many. One of them is Shaykh al-Qummi, which is more of a question than a factual retelling, reporting of history. It's more, I think, the question should be, in the case of Shaykh al-Qummi, the question should be, how come is it that his book became more successful? How come is it that his book is in every house when there are literally thousands of other books that are doing the same thing, attempting to do the same thing? Why? There has to be a reason. Nothing is random. And here's where that's one possible explanation. The easiest way to summarize all of this is to say there is perhaps greater sincerity in this specific act. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored and rewarded that by spreading it this way. And by spreading it, he gets the tawfiq that every time I open his book, as opposed to his colleague's book, he's the one getting the tawab. Because I'm reading his book. That's a great honor and a great blessing. In addition to just the book being in the house, 
It's that now his reward is getting exponentially multiplied when every other scholar has the same book or a very similar book and no one is reading those. Why? Okay? Perhaps it's the level of sincerity. And he was known to have a great level of sincerity. And we have many, many of these uh, stories in, in, in akhlaq. It's well known. Like this becomes a very you know, difficult topic because it's scary. And I've talked about this in the past. Can you actually teach or preach or relay information when you know that you are deficient in it? You're not doing it as you should. And this to me is where it gets very tricky. If you're doing it in a way where you know deep down you don't believe in this, then you better keep your mouth shut. I will say it that way, period. Because this is hypocrisy. Now, the next level. You believe in it. And you know this is the truth. And you know that you are very deficient in it. And you feel the guilt. And you feel that this is on the verge of, if not quite, you know, being in the middle of sinning. Okay? If that's the case, then at least those feelings of yours should be enough that, inshallah, you'll get to fix yourself eventually. This is no reason for you to prevent others from benefiting from this knowledge. Because this is where you see the shaitan at play here. This is going to be a suspicion where I should not share anything I know, even though I know 100% that this is the truth. And that's why I said that's the key. Do you know this is to be the truth or not? If you're convinced that this is the truth, share it with others. You might be deficient. You might have shortcomings. You're not doing everything you're supposed to be doing. But this is not enough of a reason for you not to share it with others. They may benefit from this. And you know what? Tough luck for you that now they are going to do and you will remain like the donkey of the mill. But that's your problem. You still had to share it. This is a responsibility that you have. You carry it, you have to share it. They say, for instance, that there was this scholar, and I'll end with this. There was a scholar similar to this story. There's multiple ones. And as I said, Ilm al-Akhlaq, they spend a lot of time on this. In one case, they tested the scholar. One of the scholars was perhaps Sheikh al-Naraqi or another. I've heard and read the story about more than one scholar. A scholar wrote a book on akhlaq, on spiritual development and purity. And this is perhaps the kind of, everybody knows, everybody has the knowledge around it. But who will dare to put it out there? Because if you're putting it out there, especially in that world of scholars, you're basically saying, you know, I am a teacher of akhlaq, and you can learn from me. And all of them are supposed to be these amazing giants of spirituality. So who will dare? So the book comes out. It's all about spirituality. So another scholar had heard about this scholar, that he is a great teacher of ethics and, and morality and spirituality. And his book comes out. So he looks at the beginning of the book and he sees that the book is focused on patience. And he says, I'm going to go test him. Before I can recommend this book to others or use this book, I want to know the source. I want to know who this person is. So they say he would wait on hot days where everybody usually sleeps a little when it's the heat, the top heat of the day at that time. Or at times when he knows usually scholars have a certain ritual, um, let's say calendar or plan program for their day. You know when they're supposed to rest. And he says, I went to the house and I started to knock on the door to ask a question. 
or I would send people to ask questions at a time when I know he's just about to sit to eat or he just sat to eat or he probably wants to go sleep a little, come very early in the morning, come very late at night, and he did this for multiple days. Just keep sending people at very random and annoying hours of the day. And then he himself went at the end. And he would ask every person, how did he treat you? Did he answer you? Did he answer you fully? How were his manners? Did he live by the teachings that he put in that book? And so at the end, he went himself. And three times in the same day, he went after the prayer. And he asked the same question. So I mean, you know, I already answered you. (laughs) You came already and I answered you. And you asked me again the second time. And now you're coming a third time and asking me the same question. And in every case and during that whole time, the manners, the manner in which he dealt with the people, the questions, the annoyance, no annoyance, no frustration, no impatience, as difficult as it may have been for him during that time, he did not even show the the least sign of displeasure. And so he told him, I am so-and-so. I am also a scholar and I am very concerned. I'm very focused on akhlaq. And I just wanted to tell you that I think you are truly a master of akhlaq. And this was just a little test that I made you go through. I had to see for myself why people say you are a master of akhlaq. I had to put you through this for myself. I had to see it and test you. I apologize for what I did. But to me, you are a true master of akhlaq. I want to keep learning from you. And I want others to learn from you through this book. And that's one example. And of course, psychologically, spiritually, we believe that if you are actually acting based on the teachings that you are preaching, it will be a lot more effective. As, as we say in Arabic, what comes out of the heart goes into the heart. You're sincere, you know what you're talking about, you believe in it, you actually act on it, inshallah it will go a lot further in affecting people, but this should not, this is the caveat, this should not become a reason for not spreading knowledge. To say, I have shortcomings, therefore I keep my mouth shut. No, work on your shortcomings. So long as there is no deficiency in your belief, you know that this to be the truth, you don't have doubts that this is the truth, then go ahead and preach it. It's not about you. You're simply getting people back to Ahlul Bayt and their teachings. And then work on yourself. Because, again, it would be a shame that they benefit and you don't. Okay? وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين